0: Welcome to the Museum of Femininity, a podcast where I, Charlotte Appuyard, discuss random topics of interest that relate to social history, art and material culture through a female lens. I hope you enjoy. Welcome back to the Museum of Femininity. My name is Charlotte Appuyard, and in today's mini episode I will be chatting about the fan a stylish accessory that is both aesthetically beautiful and functional. This object has centuries-long history that stretches across continents and has held varied and diverse purposes. In this episode, I will provide you with an introduction to some of these concepts, from debunking the language of fans to analysing its use as a canvas for pictorial propaganda. Let's start at the beginning and touch upon some milestones in the fan's history. The first visual representation of a fan can be seen around 300 BC on pots and images from Greek, Etruscan and Roman civilizations, where there is evidence that they were of course used as cooling tools, so to fan yourself of course, to keep you cool, and they were also used Uh, as a ceremonial device. In China fans were also used and were often associated with literary sources that related to ancient mythical and historical characters and I will say that even though the fan has deep historical associations with East Asian cultures I will mostly be focusing on the fan as a western idea and its use in a western context so there's so much I'm missing out here but I will sort of cover it here and there uh, when relevant but this is a mini episode of course. These early fans were fixed in their shape and we do not see the quintessential folding fan until much later the first European folding fans were copied from Chinese and Japanese examples that were brought back by travelling merchants and traders, as well as members of religious orders who set up missionary colonies overseas. As with many international commodities, these fans were considered to be expensive toys and status symbols that were only reserved for the very wealthy. Monchers refer to the stick part of a fan. These were often made from lavish materials like ivory, mother of pearl and tortoise shell and sometimes would contain gold, silver and precious stones or even beautiful patterns painted by craftsmen. The skill of these individuals was so respected that they even gradually amalgamated into guilds such as the worshipful the worshipful company of fan makers now we are edging into medieval territory which has brought us the earliest example of a fan that was used by the church and this is uh, a fan that was owned by queen Theodalinda. and i will have some images so you can see what that looked like and it's kind of it's more of a stick with a small fan on the end and I believe it was used as a religious relic. The Chinese and Japanese also used fans from a very early date and like with so many things, you see them developing independently in different countries who at this stage had little contact or influence over the other. In China, the screen fan was the most common and these influences were exported to Japan via Korea. Evidence also suggests the folding van came to China through Japan, so you have this interesting exchange of cultural media. It's in this time when the Eastern and Western-style vans become more merged, as there was increased contact between these civilizations, which was due to the Spice routes and the Crusades, which resulted in more Islamic influences in Europe and just a general uh, sort of intermingling of different cultures. We see more visual indicators of fans in portraits of ladies throughout the 17th century. Often they consist of feathers set into lavishly decorated handles. They gained um, in popularity over the years, with folding fans being favoured by royalty and aristocrats and the simpler fixed feather fans being seen in the hands of less influential women. We really see an explosion in fans as an accessory in the coming centuries, where they really take on their iconic status. I've mentioned the East India Company a lot on this podcast, but its importance really cannot be understated. As a major trader in goods from the East, they were instrumental in the spread of trends which had been imported from India and China, like the British taste for tea and sugar. Decorative arts were no exception, as we see a growing number of porcelain products thriving uh, in that market, as well as silks and fans as well. Around the 18th century, printed fan techniques developed, which were cheaper and allowed for mass manufacturing, the fan became a staple for everyone rather than a precious status symbol for the few. Obviously, with printing techniques, more variety in design and subject matter became possible, prompting a trend in biblical illustrations like Moses striking the rock and a walk by the river. Themes also shifted to reflect contemporary preoccupations instead of just allegories from the Old Testament. In the Georgian and Regency eras, a fan became an important part of a lady's wardrobe, particularly when she was going out and about the town and attending balls. As I've stated, the fan has an obvious utilitarian function and kept women cool in the crowded and cramped assembly rooms seen in the bustling fashionable cities of the time. In addition to this, fans were of course very beautiful and had stylish designs on them which at this time ranged from utopian Chinese landscapes to neoclassical borders and bucolic scenes of shepherds and milkmaids, as well as the usual biblical and mythological subject matters which dominated art in that time. Expressing political affiliations was also common and in the early 19th century there were many visual depictions of Lord Horatio Nelson, Particularly symbolising his victory and death at Trafalgar. This sent out a very patriotic message and confirmed that Britain ruled the waves. There are lots of examples of fans like this, and I will uh, point to one which um, depicts so you have it's a, a typical folding fan, it's made of wood and paper, so it, it looks quite cheap I suppose it's probably something a lot of people had access to and you have a roundel image sketch of Nelson in the front and there's different roundel images of ships and there's sort of messages and writing probably glorifying Nelson and everything he did and this um, fan also includes the famous flag signal quote, England expects that every man will do his duty, which is very much Nelson's reputation. So it's this extremely positive way of, you know, showing what you believe in, I suppose. And I think it's interesting to think that women often expressed these sorts of views with fashion. So it makes me wonder if there was really much of an opportunity for women to talk politics. Perhaps there was, but I do see this sort of thing as being a great way for women of the time to express uh, their views of contemporary issues of the day. So uh, another example of this, but from the opposite side of the war is... Um, is involves Napoleon Bonaparte so he was exiled in 1814 and in France you see a trend where Bonapartists, people who supported Napoleon, showed their loyalty by carrying uh, fans which had designs of pansies on them and there's a very beautiful example of a purple van with pansies and also Uh, little silver stars embroidered into it and this symbolized his abdication and his potential return to power and that example I gave is from 1816 so it sort of shows how uh, this was a developing trend from when he was exiled but it's interesting that you you see a similar kind of sentiment on both sides of the war at the time The 18th century, in my mind, is also synonymous with the notion of the language of fans. This also very much bleeds into the 19th century. Um, And this creates an image of a sort of coquettish young woman cryptically communicating with their lovers from across a crowded ballroom. I find this concept fascinating and it appears to have stuck in the imagination of many, as the legend of the language of fans has persisted. Although such things did exist, it is doubtful that they were. there was a genuinely useful form of communication. Instead, the real historic interest in this object comes from what it can tell us about the commodification of fashion and the mysteries of feminine communication in an era where women's voices were stifled and they did not have the freedom to waltz up to any man to express their interests. We start to see hints of the symbolic meaning of fans in the early 1700s. So, conjure up an image in your mind of, you know, ladies with very wide skirts and panniers, so the sort of basket-like uh, cage, I guess, um, on their hips, and then very st- a stiff stomacher on their bodice, and, you know, that classic kind of Robe, Alo, Anglais, look. So this is way before the Regency times. Um, and there there was a poem from around then, so 1742, by John Wynne Stanley, and he wrote, quote, In love's soft reign, the sceptre is the fan, woman is the sovereign, and the subject man. Her frowns and smiles, its different motions show. His hopes and fears from its impressions flow. Although this is not substantial evidence, it suggests that a fan can be an expressive weapon for a woman to express her feelings towards a man. And I suppose there is an element of you can sort of hide your face or you can be very playful with it. And it's it certainly is an interesting... Tool, I suppose, for, you can sort of dance with it in a way, um, peer over the top of it. Yeah, I can see how it would give that impression. In the 1790s, two gentlemen called Charles Francis Bandini and Robert Rowe created what they called the communication hand fan. So they both gave this item different names. Um, Rowe called it phonology or the Ladies' Conversation Van and uh, Badini named it the Ladies' Telegraph for Corresponding at a Distance which is hilarious, I think Uh, but despite this, um, you know despite the different names, they were very similar concepts and the fans contained printed instructions informing the ladies how to use them so essentially it was almost like sign language I suppose, where they held the fan in certain ways to spell out different letters. So, for instance, first position um, was uh, to hold the fan in the left hand and touch the right arm. And this could be letters A to E. Uh, or you could hold the fan in your right hand and touch the left arm for letters F to K. Um, place it against the heart for letters L to P. Uh, raise the fan to the mouth for Q to U, uh, raise the fan to the forehead for V to Z. Reading this, it feels quite ridiculous that such a thing would have existed, and it definitely does not seem to be a subtle or secretive way of communicating. The ladies' telegraph seems slightly easier to use, so there were 26 flaps corresponding to the letters of the alphabet, and you would point to each letter. To make a word. There was also a 27th flap to signify a full stop, so it was more just uh pointing and spelling words, um, which must have taken forever, let's face it. So, a bit later on, you have um a very famous guy called Jean-Pierre De Velleroy, who was an incredibly successful fan maker. He even made fans for Queen Victoria. He also won a gold medal for craftsmanship at the Great Exhibition. De Velaroy had two sons. One was born out of wedlock. He was called Jules and he took over the management of his father's London office. And the other son, George, worked in Paris. Jules would go on to publish a pamphlet which went into more detail about the further meaning behind the language of fans However unlike previous incarnations this was more to do with holding and motioning the man in certain ways to project different intentions or emotions. In my opinion it was a clear marketing ploy as he beefed up the validity of his pamphlet by claiming it was a language with deep historical meaning uh, rather than something he invented for publicity. I do think it was perhaps easier though like rather than spelling letters just to have sort of basic phrases you could indicate um and they're quite funny I don't know so one of them is twirling the fan in the left hand which means we are watched and there's one drawing the fan through the hands means I hate you drawing the fan across the cheek means I love you touching the tip of the fan with the fingers means I wish to speak to you um, and then there's others like covering the left ear with the open fan. Do you not betray our secret? And then dropping the fan means we will be friends. Or you can fan yourself slowly to say I am married um, or fan rapidly to mean I am engaged. There's all sorts. Um, some of them are quite saucy as well, like touching the handle of the fan to the lips to basically invite someone to kiss you. There is a definite practical difficulty in, to this method and of course men likely would not be able to understand what the motions meant. I imagine if a lady was sort of you know twirling a fan or like you know tapping her lips with it it would look quite strange and would probably put the man off if anything. Um, even if it was just communicating with your friend as well it would be easy to misconstrued what people were saying as you could just be slowly fanning yourself married or not and I'm sure it was easy to accidentally drop your fan Um, and you know god forbid you do that in front of someone you actually like and he misinterprets that and thinks you don't want anything to do with him although the idea that a gentleman would be well studied in the language of fans just seems quite funny and ludicrous really Um, despite this it is extremely interesting to see how fans have gone from being this exotic and lavish item exclusive to the very wealthy to a playful and commercial item that would have been widely available to different types of women. I also like the idea that women were starting to be seen as an important target market for the creation of new goods and their ability to desire a man's attention was was being acknowledged instead of them simply being portrayed as a passive wallflower waiting to be approached i think it's it's interesting that a, a feminine desire is is being sort of paid attention to and yeah even though it's it's a funny silly idea i think that that seems strangely radical to me in a sense There were also other similar fans, such as fortune-telling fans or horoscope fans. I'm not sure of the popularity of these, but it could perhaps be viewed as a form of entertainment for young ladies who are bored and looking for something to do. Either way, there is undoubtedly a flirtatious quality to the fan, and it has always been used to entrance and entice, be it by winking over the top of a fan or using them to hide and reveal in a saucy burlesque style dance. Even from their early incarnation in the West, they were drenched in symbolism and highlighted wealth, political stances and taste, cementing them as being beyond simple utilitarian or a pretty ornament for a lady to hold. They were so much more than that. And there's some really interesting examples of the fortune telling vans and they're quite detailed um i'll I'll definitely post pictures of them there's a, one here I'm looking at right now which um again it's made of wood so I do believe that a lot of these types of fans were fairly cheap and accessible and there's a print on the front which has different numbers and a dial which I assume you have to sort of pick the number kind of like um what's the, the sort of folding paper game, it looks a bit like that, and then there's lots of words and different sort of lists and things which I think you must use to figure out the fortune, and then there's a little illustration of two angels floating on a cloud, and yeah, it's just very playful and simple, you know, just a bit of fun really, probably the, you know, early nineteenth. 19- Century equivalent of a, I don't know, like a mobile phone, just to pass the time. So in terms of the other side of this, um, the most lavish fans, perhaps date from the second half of the 19th century. The artists who painted these fans were often painters themselves, not just fan makers who signed their work as well, like an artist. The industry became so successful, large maisons appeared in Paris, who manufactured luxury, luxury objects for royalty and the upper classes. One fan from this period I quite like is Queen Victoria's birthday fan. And I love that there's so much of this stuff that belonged to Queen Victoria that was sort of given to her as a present from Prince Albert. It's very sweet. And this was given to her on her 39th birthday in 1858. And it's this really beautiful um, fan, which is painted with roses. And it also has her crest in the middle. And it's this beautiful silk material with a sort of cord and tassel on the end. And it's incredibly lavish. It sort of looks like lace. The way the, the the stick part is painted is very intricate indeed. Yeah, it's an exquisite piece of work. So you have the sort of simple fans with the wooden handles, but then you also have um, the true craftsmanship of the fan as well. In addition, impressionist painters of the mid to late 19th century painted fans. This may also be due to the fact that Japanese art had surged in popularity due to the opening of Japanese borders and an increased taste for the style of woodblock prints and Japanese aesthetic. This, of course, fed into the interests of the fan and influenced the designs which were popular at the time. So we've got some examples by Camille Pissarro and Edgar Degas and these are really beautiful um designs, and it was a method that was quite encouraged. In fact, in the first Impressionist exhibition in 1874, there was an entire room dedicated to fans. And I think, particularly with the Degas example, you can see the influence of Chinese art with its use of negative space and the gathering of figures who are slightly off-center, and this expansive, simple but atmospheric landscape in the background. Also, the use of delicate quick lines makes me think of ink painting. Uh, there is a sort of echo of block prints as well with the cropped border and the layered effect. And I think it sort of shows his usual scene of a group of ba- ballet dancers sitting um, and chatting with each other. And it's like one of those, I don't know, like philosophical scholar paintings, if any of you know. This is all just based on my own observation, but it's just sort of what I think about when I look at it. And, yeah, it's lovely. It's very sketchy. It, it doesn't really look complete. Um, it's perhaps just a design, concept design. And Pissarro's one is literally a picture of... Um, it's just, like, an impressionist landscape of... river with some boats and a bridge with a train going across on a fan and it's kind of a pretty like down-to-earth scene you know there's fishermen in it um it's very different to the lavish more design focused um patterns you see earlier on like in the Queen Victoria um the Queen Victoria fan where it was just flowers and it was very sort of uniform in the patterns whereas this is like a, a, a sort of scene on a fan which I think is why perhaps it reminds me more of Japanese and Chinese examples but I am no expert this is just me kind of talking out loud but that but I, I think you can certainly see the the reflection of of those influences in all of their work, generally. And, you know, there's lots of other examples I probably could go into with, like, Art Deco movements, and, you know, it'd be interesting to kind of see how fans are are used today. Um, But I think I'll leave it at that for now. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was really interesting to revisit this subject matter, which I'd done a bit of reading about previously, And I think it's fascinating to take an object and to sort of delve into it, you know, the type of thing you take for granted and to sort of see the symbolism behind it. And, yeah, uh, I'm going to post all these pictures on Instagram. Please follow us there at the Museum of Femininity. And I hope you tune in again to listen to the next episode, which should be at the end of the month thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoy the rest of your day, whatever you may be doing. Goodbye.